0: So last week, last week I, spent some, I spent some significant time kind of outlining the history that led us to this point. And I'll, do it, I'll do it briefly again here. So, so Aram and the, northern, and the northern kingdom of Israel have attacked Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. And that attack wasn't successful, but it scared the king of Judah. And so Isaiah the prophet tells him not to be afraid, but to trust the Lord, to protect him. But King, king Ahaz, in his fear, turns to the king of Assyria, which is the evil empire of the day, to protect him from his enemies. And so as a word of judgment, the Lord says that Assyria is not going to stop at, at protecting Judah from its enemies. It's going to continue by taking Judah into judgment as well, an exile. And so, and so last week was a word of judgment. This week, however, is a word of profound hope. You see it in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now note the future orientation of that verse. In the future, salvation is coming. Verse 2 actually makes a a, a tense shift over the course of these next six verses. You get get salvation moving back and forth between being in the future and being in what's called the present perfect tense. Don't worry, it sounds sounds complicated, but it's not. The future is something that will happen. The present perfect is, is a reference to a past event that has present consequences. A past event that has present consequences. Here's an example. Let's say I say the sentence, I ate the spiciest pepper in the world. That's the simple past. If I told you that, you don't know anything about when I ate it. Hearing it, you might assume that it happened a while ago. It also doesn't necessarily mean that me eating that pepper has an effect on the state that I'm in right now. It's just a thing that I did. It was great or it was terrible. If I tell you I have eaten the spiciest pepper in the world. You're going to expect a follow-up. I have eaten the spiciest pepper in the world, therefore, I can definitely make it through this interview. That's easy compared to eating the spiciest pepper in the world. I've eaten the spiciest pepper in the world. This Indian food will be no problem. I have eaten the spiciest pepper in the world, and my intestines have probably been permanently damaged. (laughs) It's a past event that has clear, present consequences. But that's the way that verses 2 to 7 ought to be read, that salvation is coming, but also God says that salvation, that's the, that, that, that because, God, because God said that salvation is coming, it's like salvation has already come. And if salvation has already come, then that affects our actions now. Hear that resonate in verses 2 to 4. What is the substance of the hope in this, in this text? It's that for a people about to suffer under imperial oppression, that the Lord says that joy is coming, that even though it's been dark for a while, the Lord is saying that light is coming, that even though numbers have been low for a while, abundance is coming, that even though people have been downcast for a while, joy is coming. How? Well, in verse four, it says, for, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we talk about God, it's supremely important that we do so in the way that God has revealed God's self. What do I mean? Talk about God the way that God talks about God. Said another way, the most important thing about God is whatever God says is the most important thing about God. And what is that? Well, how did God introduce himself to his people when he gave them the law? Before the very first commandment, the Lord introduces himself. You can can see it as God's walk-up music, the, the tune that plays every time he shows up. And that tune goes something like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If there is one thing for you to know about the God of the Bible, this is the thing to know, because this is how God introduces himself. When the people were oppressed by Midian, and they, and they cried out, the first words that the prophet told them from the Lord in Judges, in Judges six, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Who is the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is a God who sets his people free, period. That's not me making it up. That's just what God says about himself. And he says it often about himself. So I think it's important that we continue to affirm it. And when, and, and when Midian is defeated by Gideon in Judges 7, the story is that Gideon starts with 32,000 soldiers and the Lord whittles it down to 300. 300. And those 300 defeat an army that's described as thick as locusts and with camels more numerous than the sand on the seashore. How should we understand that? Gideon didn't free the people, God did. The day of Midian's defeat is a day of God's victory. He shattered the yokes of God's people, whether it was Egypt, whether it was Midian, or in the future, Assyria, or Babylon. He removed the rod of their oppressor. He is the one who set them free. And so if you want to know one thing, one thing about the God of the scriptures is that he sets his people free. But that raises another question. What does it really mean to be free? We mentioned this last week. We talked about living in a world with the extending tendrils of neoliberal capitalism. If you don't know what it is, you can blast Sermon. It's like uh, we, tell, we tell developing countries, where developing is just a euphemism for countries that have been brutally exploited historically. We tell them, you're free to compete while cutting out from under them the means by which they might compete. To bring it home, you're, you're free to apply to whatever job you want, but you're not in this system Guaranteed a job and the things that are socially necessary for you to be able to apply for a job a car a phone a constant Place to live or be contacted Those things aren't universal So we can talk about everyone having a particular opportunity, but it's not it's not really true This goes back to the freedom offered by Satan in the garden He offered to Adam and Eve the freedom To determine good and evil for themselves What he didn't tell them is that that so-called freedom would lead to slavery and death. Because so-called freedom from the Lord is a slavery to sin, death, and the devil. It doesn't sound like a great form of freedom to me. And yet that's the kind of freedom that people are seeking throughout the scriptures. This is actually what undergirds the beginning of Israel's monarchy. After the book of Judges, which is absolutely wild, it ends with perhaps the most grotesque example of the moral degeneration of the people of God in a brutal sexual assault. And the narrative picks up with the people in First Samuel. And the right response of the people after that book would have been to say, hey, we've been forsaking the Lord for a while. He saved us from slavery. He set up our law so that, we, so that he could be our king. Let's head back to him. But instead, what they say is what we confessed earlier in 1 Samuel 8, chapter, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 to 20. They said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Give us a king so we can be like everybody else. Give us a king who can fight our battles. Give us a king that we can look to in times of trouble. Somebody that we can touch. God tells Samuel two things about this move. First, and most importantly, that asking for a king is a rejection of the kingship of God. It's true of Israel, and it's true of us. We want kings in our churches. We want kings and queens in our relationships. We want kings and queens in our work. We want it in our country. We're more comfortable with hierarchy. One of the main reasons that, that, I, think that, 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 that I think Slim and I Work work well together is because neither of us wants to be a senior pastor. That would that would tear us, that would tear us apart. It's, it's, it's actually why a number of co-pastorates don't work. And it would be comfortable to think even about marriage as a site of hierarchy where one spouse makes all the decisions and the other follows. But it's also important for us to remember that domination is part of the curse, not God's intent. In our political sphere, one of the things that attracted some folks to our past president was the fact that he often operated like he thought he was a king. And when you perceive that your life is in chaos, you want someone who to come in with a strong hand and to set things right. We often point to human beings when we feel that need. We all want a king. Israel got one. They got a few of them. But the second thing that God told his people is what kings would do. He told them that kings would take their sons and daughters, would take the best of their crops, would create a military-industrial complex. Basically, a human king will dominate and exploit you. And this was not only true of Israel, but it's true of anyone that we put that mantle on. If we want somebody to rule, this is how people do it. And that is, in a nutshell, the story of the Scriptures as a whole. The people of God dealing with the consequences of submitting themselves to bad leadership. Or, said another way, the Bible is the narrative of a people who are constantly under empire. And while, but, but while it's the story of a people under empire, it's also the story of a God who insists on, pe- on being king of his people. In fact, that's what actual real freedom is. It's not, a, it's not kind of a libertarian, I can do whatever I want without restriction. But it's, I am free to serve the actual king. Verses five to seven of Isaiah nine describe what that kingdom looks like. Verse five, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. One of the things that defines the state is a monopoly on violence. That is, I can't, like me, I can't kill you without consequence, but the state can if it has a good enough reason. One marker of the Lord's kingdom is the absence of war. The people of God don't need an army because God fights their battles in, a, in the way that he needs to fight them. And often that doesn't mean slaughtering the enemy. Sometimes he just scares them away. Sometimes, as he did with us, he converts his enemies. But all of that points to the idea that we're never advocates or soldiers in war. This king would come as a child. And he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, each of those names are actually, they're, they're names that ancient Near Eastern kings would claim for themselves. But, but this Davidic king would actually embody what those names mean. It wouldn't be a, a self-aggrandizing exaggeration. No, it would just be a matter of fact. This, this king would give wondrous, comforting counsel. This this king would indeed be mighty, but his power would not be used to dominate. His power would be used to love. When this king claimed to be God, he wouldn't be committing blasphemy, even though he would be executed for that. This king would be everlasting. He would bring a peace that nothing would be able to break. This king would never give up his throne, but he would not reign with an iron fist, but with outstretched arms. This messianic king would reign justly, not just over the nation of Israel, but over the entire world. You see, brothers and sisters, because this king's name is Jesus. And when this Jesus lived his earthly life, the most important thing that he talked about was, you guessed it, his kingdom. When, 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 when Antonio Gonzalez reminded me of this, my, my, my mind, my mind was, was blown. Why hadn't I been talking about the kingdom of God in every single one of my sermons? It's what the word gospel means. It's the good news of the coming of a king. It's, the, it's in the very beginning of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's throughout the parables. It's what all of the scriptures are trying to tell us. How to live as a people for whom God is king. And Jesus reveals to us the logic of that kingdom. That it's a kingdom not of domination, but of love. A kingdom not of exploitation, but of generosity. A kingdom not of competition, but of solidarity. A kingdom powered not by ego, but by the very spirit of God himself. A kingdom extended not by violent conquest, but by evangelism. A kingdom where people don't get what they deserve, they get grace. A kingdom where true justice and righteousness will descend on the cosmos, not just now, but forever. You see, brothers and sisters, that's the kingdom that we need. But we continually settle for less. We seek and settle into human hierarchy because it just seems, it seems easier. We want kings and queens. And some of us don't settle, don't settle into hierarchy. We just want to be heads of those hierarchies. Because, you know, if I was in charge, everything would be great. But the scriptures continually tell us that that is not the case. Because when, because when we're in charge, things fall apart. No. No, Jesus Jesus took on flesh, he preached, he worked miracles, he was betrayed, crucified and killed because that was the road to his kingship. Never lose sight of the upside-down nature of this kingdom. Never lose sight, brothers and sisters, of the fact that our faith, our understanding of power, our understanding of love, our understanding of peace, of justice, of righteousness, of kingship is dictated and shaped by one event. What Jesus does on the cross. We think that kingship is best exemplified by those who wish to fight for us. But Jesus showed us that real kingship is best exemplified by the one who died for us. And, that's, and that final sentence of Isaiah 9 7 seals the deal. The, the, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Lord is insistent on, on, re, on reclaiming his rule because of his love his people because of his love for you he wants you to be united to him and to know that comfort to know the com- to know that that comfort will attend you throughout whatever it is that you go through because he knows you want a king he knows that the world is overwhelming he knows that your relationships are overwhelming he knows that your responsibilities seem overwhelming and he comes to you and he says come all who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest but even that's not the end. We're going to talk a little bit about eschatology today. About where we're, where we're going. Because I think, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think a lot about our hope and our peace depends on where we think we're going. So, 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 so when we think about kingship, even even the Lord's kingship, we tend to think about it as exclusive. After all, only one person can rule, right? Well, not only does Jesus' rule tell us that that's not true. Because it's the throne of both the Father and the Lamb, we're told in Revelation. But even more amazingly, this is a throne that actually extends even past them. This is what we confess this morning in 2 Timothy 2 11 to 13. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, this is insane. I need you guys to understand like how insane this is. We will also reign with him. I just wanted to stop there because that's wild. We will reign with Christ. When you think about the new heavens and new earth and you think about the throne that sits atop them, you have to remember that this king, the God that we serve, doesn't even jealously cling to his own throne. He is eager to share it with all those who are united to Christ. The one person with the right to claim the top of the hierarchy refuses to do so. Why in the world do you and I call for it? The end of history, the ultimate coming, of the kingdom, ends not merely with the Father and Son ruling creation, but with the saints ruling alongside him. That is, you and me, alongside the eternal Son of God, will tend the redeemed cosmos. This is what he called us, this, this is what he created us to do in the very beginning. This is, this is, this is, what, this is what Adam and Eve failed to do. But in the renewed cosmos, we will be able to do what we were meant to do. And so when you consider, when you consider your earthly vocation, consider that what you're doing here is a taste of what your stewardship of the cosmos is going to be. The frustrations will be gone at that point, but the joys will be mind-blowing. As opposed to the kingdoms of the world, which Daniel and Revelation referred to as beasts, like animals. The kingdom of God has a human face, the face of Jesus, and not only does it have a human face, but it is a shared kingdom, and it's not just shared among those whom you would expect. I I I wanted, I wanted I want to end our time with this with this with this with this passage at the very beginning of our passage, Isaiah nine one. You may have missed this this detail, but it's a very important detail. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which are two tribes of Israel. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. See, brothers and sisters, the most important biblical distinction between people is between Jew and Gentile. What would appear to be those whom God chooses and those whom God doesn't. Those whom God saves and those whom God doesn't. Or at least that's the way that it would appear. What Isaiah is telling us is that the only distinction that ought to matter in our minds is those whom God has saved and those whom the Lord has yet to save. Because we who were far off have been brought near. And, and not just brought near. If If we we humble ourselves, the Lord will lift us up. And if we endure, the Lord will vindicate us. That is the end result of your endurance. That is the hope that has been set before you. And only at that point will we know true peace. Not Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that we long for, ruled by the king that we need. Let's pray.